You're listening to the cycling podcast Femina, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and welcome to the Cycling Podcast Femina. My name is Rose Manley and this month I'm joined by Orla Shenoui and Lionel Burney. Now, before we get on with the show, this is the first regular Feminine episode back since we lost our colleague, our linchpin, our friend, Richard Moore. The Cycling Podcast Feminine was a small part of the vast legacy that Richard left us with. We owe it to him and to our listeners to carry on, to continue to bring women's cycling alive, to show it the respect it deserves and hopefully have some fun along the way. It will be hard and by God, we will miss you, Richard. But I think we all know, with the buffalo sitting atop the Cycling Podcast logo and through the things that he taught us, through the people he brought together, Richard, in some way, shape or form, will always be with us on the journey. And so let that journey begin now. And what better way than with Orla's News Roundup? Thanks, Rose. Um, I just want to say before I start the News Roundup, how lovely that was. Thanks for doing that because I know it wasn't easy. Um... And I know that um, Lionel's been back on the horse, or the buffalo maybe, um, but this is a, a difficult start at least to this podcast for all of us. I know it is. Um, but we also know that Richard would be absolutely feckin' livid if we didn't crack on. <laughs> um, so yeah, crack on we shall. Um, and just thank you everybody for, for keeping with us on the journey. Um, we have to go, gosh, it sounds really, it feels really strange getting into a news roundup, but anyway, it's what we've got to do. It's not what we've got to do, it's what we love doing, that's the point. Um, but yeah, we have to go all the way back to Strada Bianca, believe it or not, to pick up where our last news roundup, roundup rather, left off. Um, and it's actually been really nice to go back through the spring and remember the incredible racing that we've had. Lotte Kopecky, do you remember, won a genuinely out-of-your-seat thriller of a two-up with Annemiek van Vleuten to tie in nicely with Richard's plan of doing a feature on Belgian women's cycling, something that will bring you uh, most likely in the next episode. It's only been five months since the last Ronde van Drenthe and defending champion Lorena Vibis once again took the win, this time over Elisa Balsamo and Lotte Kopecky. At Trofeo Alfredo Binda, Elisa Balsamo took her first one-day race win since the World Championships last year, with Sofia Bertizzolo of Live Racing finishing second for the biggest result of her career, and Soraya Paladin of Canyon Shram for arguably the biggest of hers finishing in third. Balsamo then backed that up just four days later with a win at the OxyClean Classic Bruja de Pana, the filling in what would be a hat-trick sandwich of first-time wins for the world champion, with Lorena Vibas in second and Marta Bastianelli in third. And then, three days after that, yes, you've guessed it, you probably remember already, Balsamo again took a Women's World Tour win, this time at Ghent-Vevelgem, rounding off what must surely be one of the most successful weeks of racing of any pro cyclist, I have a question mark on my notes about that. I meant to look it up and I didn't. So um, you've got time to Google before I finish uh, the uh, news roundup. Mariana Voss finished in second with uh, Maria Confalonieri. I can never say her name properly. Confalonieri finishing in third. 
Tour of Flanders then, what a beaut of a race with the most romantic of winners, the Belgian national champion taking the Belgian world championships essentially. Lotte Kopecky winning the Ronde over Annemiek van Vleuten in a repeat result of Stradebianke with Chantal van den Broek-Black finishing in third. On to Amsel Gold, Marta Cavalli took the biggest win of her career so far, um, the first of the three Arden Classics, and it was a good one for her to win as well, wasn't it? The prize money this year matching the men's of €40,000. Demi Vollering of SC Works took second from the group four seconds back, while Leanna Lippert of Team DSM Women took third, with Annemiek van Vleuten falling just short of the podium. Uh, Paris-Roubaix Femme then, it's two from two for Trek Segafredo, not only for the win, but winning from a long solo attack as well. This time as Lizzie Dignan watched from home, no doubt. It was her teammate Italian champion, Elisa Longoborghini, who went solo at 34 kilometres this time around to take the win with Lotte Kopecky finishing in second and Lucinda Brand in third. We'll probably mention this, but another notable incident in that race was Elisa Balsamo puncturing almost crashing on her chase back and then being disqualified after taking a sticky bottle from her team car. Um, And not just for taking the sticky bottle, but for being caught on camera, essentially. Um, The Flesh Willon winner's door was finally left open for someone new to come through after seven-time winner Anna van der Brekker retired. And it was Marta Cavalli who pushed her way through, beating Annemiek van Vleut into the line and taking her second Ardennes win in 10 days. Demi Vollering and Ashley Millman, Passio finishing in third and fourth both for team uh, SD Works. Liège Basson Liège then and after three second places and an almost podium in fourth Annemiek van Vleuten took her first Women's World Tour win of the season. That's her latest winning start to the Women's World Tour since 2018. She won after a 14km solo attack to take her second Liège Baston Liège, beating the chasing pack by 43 seconds, no less, with Grace Brown in second, Demi Vollering in third. And it's worth mentioning that Brown's second for FDJ topped off a superb Ardennes campaign for the team after Cavalli won both Amstel and Flesh, while Vollering made it to the podium of every one of the three Ardennes classics, but no win for the 2021 Liège champion. In other news briefly, Amy Peters has shown signs of consciousness after four months in a coma. SD Works released a statement saying that she can now communicate slightly, non-verbally, that she can recognise people and she understands what is being said. No doubt it's a long road ahead for her um, to recovery, but it is wonderful news and we wish her all the very best in her recovery. Um, And finally, Annemiek van Vleuten has fractured her wrist after crashing in training. She underwent surgery the same day, but she will sit out the upcoming Spanish races where she usually goes so well. But apparently she is still preparing for the Girodonna and the Tour de France fam as planned. And that, I believe, is your news roundup. Well, Orla, plenty in your news roundup, and that means that we've got plenty of racing to get our teeth into in this episode, where we're going to be doing a little bit of a review of the spring classics season. But but tell me, both of you, what has been your overall impression of, of this season compared to ones that we've seen before? I don't know if it's a case of, you know, at the, the first week of the Tour de France, every year it feels like these these years... Um, we all declare it to be the most exciting first week of the Tour de France that anyone can remember ever, ever, apart from last year and probably apart from next year. And so I don't know if I'm guilty of that, but I feel like this has been the most exciting 
spring season in women's cycling, certainly since I've covered it. And I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm misremembering past springs, but just the, di- just the dynamism of the racing and probably the fact that we've gotten to see so much more of it. And, you know, the complaints about how little we get to see of women's racing compared to men's racing are valid, but we're getting to see much, much more than before. Um, but it just feels like we're at this lovely juncture of lots and lots of different riders winning, lots of different riders finishing on the podium, different teams now with enough strength to make it exciting. It used to be that women's racing was so exciting because it was completely unpredictable and it was a bit kamikaze. Now you've still got an element of that, but there's more control within it as well. But it's just been the most dynamic um, start to a season that I can remember. And I, th- I think it's been an absolute thriller. Lionel, are you someone who likes the kind of varied winners or are you someone who likes that? I guess it depends what kind of stance you have on bike racing. If you want to see one of those rivalries meeting race after race or whether you want those varied winners, doesn't it, I guess? Well, I think the thing that I took away from my trip to Paris-Roubaix, and I'll talk about this a bit more in the episode, is just uh, how rapidly the team dynamics are evolving. I mean, we saw the, the sort of concentration of strength and power in SD Works and Trek, Segafredo particularly, and seeing those teams trying to sort of get the upper hand on one another and having various, you know, success in, in different races. But then how the teams with supposedly fewer resources are, are racing smarter as well. And the, the mix of riders in final groups um, particularly in, um, uh, I thought, Paris-Roubaix and Liège-Bastogne-Liège, you know, you, you didn't know exactly what was going to happen until it happened. I mean, it's all very easy to look back and say, well, Elisa Longo-Borghini, she attacked from um, a good distance out and was strong enough to hold on. Annemiek van Vluten did the same in Liège-Bastogne-Liège. Yeah, in hindsight, well, that was obvious, wasn't it? But at the time, there was that kind of sense of... Um, a mystery really and wondering how the teams are going to play the various cards that they've got and and again you know looking at uh you know sd works supposedly they've got you know multiple cards to play but they didn't really manage to play them all that effectively it wasn't that they made mistakes that was the other thing you know they did kind of like you know the first couple of pages of the tactical manual but the other teams and the other riders had an answer for it. And I thought that was the kind of evolving story over the certainly the second half of the spring races um, that I saw. I suppose in the first half, Elisa Balsamo is becoming very difficult to beat in anything that comes down to any sort of sprint. And so um, it was good when the, the, um, the storylines kind of varied out a little bit in the second half of the spring. I like that nobody was, was unbeatable. And maybe that's... What feels fresher and newer compared to seasons gone past when you do have, you know, ST works for such a long time, Bowles Dolmans were the unbeatable team until, you know, others were starting to rival them. But now that we, we do have our first season without Anna van der Breche, there's a, a stranglehold that's been released, I think. And, and we'll come to this probably, but I had expected in many situations, Annemiek van Vleuten to take the wins that Anna van der Brecher wasn't there to take. Almost, you know, because you talk about the rivalries, Rose, and, you know, you look at 
in the men's peloton, we've got Walt Van Aert or Mathieu van der Poel, it's one or the other. So I just assumed, you know, Annemiek van Vleuten doesn't need Anna van der Brecht to not be there to win. But you kind of assume she's going to step in and grab all those extra races that are now going begging. And she hasn't done that. And I love that, you know. And even Balsamo, by the time she'd won her third race, you're thinking, oh, here we go. That's a spring written off. You know, she's going to keep winning with that gorgeous big smile of hers. But she didn't, you know. And then she's blinking, kicked off Pyrobe, which, which, you know, is terrible for her and terrible. For, well, I was going to say terrible for the team. It wasn't really. They won, of course. Um... But it, it was it was thrilling because it kept this jeopardy alive. And as you say, Lionel, even with Elisa Longo-Borghini winning Pirate Bay, which we'll talk about a little bit. But at one stage, I was convinced that was it. Her race was over. Her, her gap came down to like within 10 seconds. And logic dictates she's going to be swallowed up by the chasing pack and they're going to have to go afresh. But she kept, she stayed out front somehow, magically. So... We've had the element of, like I say, jeopardy and mystery, as you say, Lionel, and um, intrigue pretty much to the line with most of these races. And it's been a blooming marvel. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat or drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast Feminine, like the Cycling Podcast, whole family of podcasts is supported by Super Sapiens and the system of continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, you can't see because I'm wearing a long sleeve top, but I'm wearing my Super Sapiens sensor on my right upper arm. I'm going to be a guinea pig. I'm going to be a guinea pig. Get your arms out, Lionel. Come on, give L- the ladies Lionel. something to see. Come on. Can I, but can I, can I point out that... It's not the fact you're wearing a long sleeve top that means that listeners can't see. It was a podcast. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I was referring more to you two because we're talking on a on a. Oh yeah, on sorry, video sorry. Call. It's more of a three way conversation than than outwardly. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Sorry. I mean, um, I'm the guinea pig on the podcast because throughout the Giro d'Italia, which I'm setting off for tomorrow, I'm going to be wearing the Super Sapiens sensor. Ooh and uh, assessing my energy levels seeing what the what the glucose numbers are and uh, seeing how the stresses and strains of covering a grand tour impact on my glucose levels uh, but more pertinently probably see how uh, my refueling habits impact on my energy levels um That's going to be fascinating during a grand tour, though, well, isn't it? Late night meals and three courses. And... Exactly, double double tiramisu <laughs> after every stage. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least we... you can say it's a science experiment now, Lionel. That Ex- gives you a good excuse, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> As I've said on the cycling podcast in our Super Sapiens slots, I have used the system before last summer, and uh, well, it gave me slight cause for concern because um, my my spikes were quite spiky. And so um, it was one of the factors that convinced me that I needed to do something to alter my diet somewhat and lose a bit of weight. So I'm 20 kilos lighter now than I was when I first used the system. And already, I mean, I've only had it on my arm for a few days, but my spikes are more consistent, lower. Um, my, my, my sort of, um, you know, energy dips are not as significant. Um, and so it feels like I'm kind of leveling everything out and keeping my blood glucose in uh, the optimum zone. So I'm looking forward to hearing what the super sapiens uh, boffins. That's what we say, isn't it, about experts who know about scientific things. <laughs> I'm looking forward to 
If know, we're reading a comic book exactly. in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They'll be there in their white lab coat analyzing my figures. <laughs> and over, on oversized spectacles. <laughs> Indeed. So if you're listening to the Giro coverage, which kicks off at the end of this week, you'll uh, hear my Super Sapiens journey. And if you want to find out a bit more about how it all works, go to supersapiens.com. Well, I did say that we were going to do a bit of a review of the Spring Classics. And I thought, what better way can we do that by each of us picking out a moment, a race, a rider, something significant that we've noticed from the Spring Classics already this season. So, Lionel, you know, you went out to Paris. Oh, well, I'm giving away what you're going to say, actually, now. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel, tell us what your mysterious <laughs> moment or race might be. Well, Rose, at the start of March, I went to Strada Bianca. Uh, there we go. A curveball. <laughs> oh, no, no, you confused me. <laughs> oh. Well, it kind of does tie Lenfield. in. It kind of does tie in because those two races are fantastic races. I mean, Strada Bianca is a modern classic. Paris-Roubaix is a classic classic. And the difference between the two experiences as a journalist on the ground could not be more different. Strada Bianca, the women's race is held in the morning. The men's race kind of comes... Yeah, it sort of overlaps with it, but they're both in completely different parts of um, of the Tuscan countryside. It's impossible to be in two places at once. If you go over there as a journalist, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to then just sit and watch the action in the press room. You want to get out, you want to go to the starts and the finishes and go out and see the action on some of the white roads. And it's just impossible to do that because the races are held on the same day. And so it really is a sort of, from, from the point of view of, actually being there it's quite tricky um, to cover both races adequately Paris-Roubaix with them both held on consecutive days over the weekend is an absolutely out of this world experience I mean it really is the kind of the the blueprint for um, how the world tour race organizers and the UCI should be looking at dovetailing the calendars um, because you get this feeling of two equally important races that happen um, over the weekend and there was a real sense at the start in Denain on the Saturday morning that Paris-Roubaix had basically come of age in 12 well not even 12 months six months isn't it because it was mm. the October edition was the first edition I remember being there at the start in October and there was this kind of sense of anticipation of curiosity the riders themselves were going into the unknown they didn't really know how the race would play out they didn't know what would be possible what would be um, you know unachievable Obviously, we saw Lizzie Dignan take it on right from the first, pretty much the first cobblestone. And there was a real sense in Denain on the Saturday morning that tactically the riders were aware that that couldn't happen again and that the race was going to be different. Obviously, the weather was different. Um, the wind conditions were different. You know, that that has a, um, a, a, a lot to um, say when it comes to the way Paris-Roubaix um, works out but there was a real sense that teams had plans and and that they were uh, going to put those plans into action against one another and of course the finest made plans um, can be completely ripped up if one of your opponents uh, chooses to do something different so there was this sense of a really great uh, um, storyline was going to be written uh, on the Saturday and we just didn't know what was going to happen and so to see the way the race unfolded and it was it was both a sledgehammer attack from Elisa Longo Borghini, as uh, but as you say, you know, it did nearly come back. I didn't think necessarily it would come back because that gap still so hard to close, and there wasn't quite the cooperation. Um, but tactically, it was such a 
you know, a sophisticated race. You know, there was so much going on. And of course, you know, Trek Segafredo, they played it absolutely perfectly. Okay, we have to kind of gloss over Elisa Balsamo getting disqualified. Um, you know, that was... No, we don't. That's one of the highlights of the race. <laughs> I love that. But I love that frailty. I love the fact that I don't like a, a perfect performance by a team. I think that's wonderful, really. I did feel actually when you're watching it that their kind of Trek Segafredo's options seem to be getting narrower and narrower and narrower up until that uh, Elisa Longo Borghini attack because it, it seemed like Chloe Hoskin crashed, uh, Ellen Van Dyke had a puncture, Balsamo got disqualified. And so it felt like, you know, all of their kind of players or, you know, all of these people who'd be p- being the best domestics you could find seemed to be getting fewer and fewer and fewer. And they were they were going to be struggling to find you know how many plans could they have come up with how many mm. how many different scenarios could they have come up with so i think it was kind of an opportunistic move from elisa longo borghini uh, when she did move and it was it was surprising for me because i did think that sd works seemed to have so much under control up until uh, that point but it then it turned round that it seemed that they'd been burning too many matches because you know they were left in a situation where they had kopecky and uh, Chantal Vanderbrook Black, and both of them had either been uh, in huge in in a breakaway, a really forceful breakaway, or they'd been doing a lot of work on the front. And then you felt like, well, who's who's the person who's been saving their legs here? Yeah, well, the big problem for SD Works was that they had the a rider in exactly the right position when Longo Borghini attacked, but it was just the wrong wrong rider, wasn't mm. it? It was Elena Cecchini, and and so um, you know she wasn't going to work um but she was uh you, you know it put sd works from a very strong position into actually quite a weak position um straight mm. away i always felt i mean we recorded um an episode of arrivé uh, myself and lizzie banks after that race and my head was absolutely swimming you know trying to get my head around mm. what had happened in the race and how it all uh, how it all gone and i think that's the best races are like that for one minute you just can't make head nor tail of it and then all of a sudden, as you start talking about it or boiling down the key points, what really were the three, four key moments in, say, the last 50 or last 75 kilometers? And suddenly they all become clear and you can you can kind of make sense of it, uh, you know, when previously it looked like absolute chaos. And that's exactly how uh, that edition of Peru Bay um, felt to me, really. It, it suddenly all made sense. Admittedly, when Lizzie started talking, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does help, doesn't it? <laughs> but isn't that the beauty of Paris-Roubaix anyway, though? The utter chaos. And I mean, the word unpredictable is, I was going to say overused when it comes to Paris-Roubaix, but it can't be, you know, because it is so entirely unpredictable at every single given moment, you know? And you're saying, Rose, about Trek sort of losing options as they go. But I remember asking... Um, before we started recording in the Eurosport studio, I asked Magnus Backstead, how many plans does a team have to have going into um, Paris-Roubaix? And he was like, you've got to go through to Zed, but you don't have all the riders to get you to Zed. Like, you've got to rip up plans, you know, at every cobble sector almost. And I just absolutely love that. And Lionel, I'm so glad that you say that it's a joy to cover on the ground because so often bike races, not so often actually, but sometimes it can be more of a challenge and so they become disappointing almost to cover in person and you get to see a lot more when you're watching on the TV. Um, But I feel like 
Paris-Roubaix now as a as a weekend of racing is is absolutely the best weekend of sport of the entire year. And this is probably quite sacrilegious of me to admit, but I I could almost take or leave men's Paris-Roubaix before. I found it really interesting, but it was up there with Flanders or even Milan-San Remo. I know a lot of people call it boring, but... Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was up there with all the others, essentially, all the classics, you know, until Women's Paris-Roubaix last year. And I wasn't sure if it was because it was the first and because I had that goosebumps all day and because I felt that weight of history that I thought maybe this is why it's so special. But it's not. It's because you get to that weekend and that's it. You sit down first thing in the morning, you know, you get yourself settled in, you get your bum all cosy in the chair and you are ready for two full solid days of chaotic racing that you know whatever the weather whatever the outcome is going to be beautiful it's going to be the very essence of why we love road racing and the fact that the women's race has all that time to breathe and and it's not a warm-up for the men's race at all it's just part of it it's just a part of the entire weekend which is a celebration and a festival of of road cycling and and i find it now this year I feel like it's consolidated that place in my soul. I mean, like, it is, it's taken on a different level. And that's because we have a women's race. And it's because we have a women's race on a separate day where it's got time to have its own identity, albeit one that's tied to the men's race. But, um, yeah, I just, I just think, I, I think Pyro Bay as a weekend now is, is the greatest that there is, really. I mean, I don't know what you think, but surely that has to be the blueprint for other race organisers. I mean, the, the mm. big excuse yeah. was... Uh, there's lots of um, of the, the the men's world tour races where there's also a, a fairly lucrative sportive attached to the weekend, and that tends to take out Saturday. Well, at Paris Bay, they had the sportive on the Saturday, and it was mm. out of the way before the women's race. So it is possible. They certainly at Paris Bay, it's possible. We're actually lucky that it is like that because I think they they had it on Saturday and Sunday just because of some strange quirk, wasn't it, last year? And they had actually said uh, after we had that October mm-hmm. edition that next time it was going to be back to, well, not back to normal, but it was going to follow the pattern of most races where they have the women's uh, and then the men's, or I guess at Tour Funds they have them the other way around now. But um, I, I actually don't know what it what it was that changed their mind on that, but um, but we are lucky that they went, they changed their minds on it and went back to having it the women's on the Saturday and the men's on the Sunday instead of having both on the Sunday. Yeah, there was a period when uh, that was the case, and my heart yeah. kind of sank really because it it did detract from the weekend. Um, certainly, the the point of being at the races is to go out and experience them. Uh, you know, from our point of view as journalists, we want to be at the start, at the finish, and if possible, with the classics mm-hmm. out on the course, just to to capture a bit of the the, the sound and spirit and soul of these events. And um, yeah, putting them on consecutive days is is definitely the way ahead, as far as I can see. So maybe some other classics will, uh, you know, the organisers whether it be RCS or Flanders Classics, will we'll look at the success of Paris-Roubaix and realise that it probably is a smart play um, you know, for, for future editions. We can only hope. I think it gives, it gives women's cycling the maturity that it already has. You know, it credits the maturity, I should say, because if you look at, for example, the Flanders Classics and the Tour of Flanders 
I mean, Flanders Classics rightly gets a lot of praise for the work that it proactively does to to try to level up. Um, but if you look at the Tour of Flanders, for example, okay, so they they put the women's race on after the the men's race, and again, that was a quirk of scheduling. It wasn't it wasn't to give more prominence to women's racing. It just worked out then to benefit the women's race because they were able to keep viewers from the men's race um, still watching then the women's race. However, it. Uh, it still leaves me a little bit flat. I can't, I can't fully invest in women's tour of Flanders because I can't watch it, you know. I, and I'm still trying to digest the men's race as we're suddenly thrown into maybe sixty kilometers to go of a race that I don't know what's happened until then. I don't, I haven't invested yet, and my and my head is still trying to work out what's just been, as you say, Lionel. After a race, you you know your your head's in a spin, um, and so. It might work for viewer numbers on the television, but it doesn't work as a viewer, I think, or it certainly doesn't work as someone who wants to fully consume women's cycling. Um, but I'd be curious as to what you both think about the likes of the suggestion now that we would have a men's Milan San Remo, for example. A, a men's. A I think that sounds like Milan a crazy idea, Orla. Men, men could possibly do that kind of distance. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, that's it. That do you know? Isn't that doesn't that say everything? That, that my default is the woman's, and then if we're doing something different, it has to be the men's version. What I meant was let's let's revert to how society views things, which is men is the default. Um, that they're thinking of doing a woman's Milan San Remo. Um, and our friend Tilda Price was on Twitter earlier and sort of pointing out, which is something that I've um, alluded to quite a lot anyway. Is you know whether women's racing should always be aping the successful men's races. Um, or whether it should be consolidating what it's got. And I fear um, a woman's balance on rainbow. Okay, fine. Um, but the peloton is so stretched as it is. We want to see quality racing and a, 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 a cohesive calendar rather than more and more races added on top because it makes sense for that race organizer to add another race and to be seen to be adding a woman's race. Just a point of order from the uh, the elder statesman of our trio <laughs> by some distance, I should say. There has been a, a, a women's equivalent of Milan San Remo. The Primavera Rosa was held between 99 and 2005, I think it was. Um, it was traditionally the first European round of the World Cup back then. And it was held on the same course. Um, and the same distance? Was, no. No, 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 sorry. No, no not the same. Uh, it started... But, the, yeah, shortened um, course. Sa- yeah. South, it was a shortened course, but it, it was held over the same finale as mm-hmm. Milan San Remo. Certainly, you know, Cipressa and Poggio. And, I mean, you know, it, it, it was a big race at the time. Um, you know, as I say, the, the opening European round of the World Cup, I think the World Cup those in those times used to start in Australia with rounds in either Canberra or Sydney or... Um, I can't remember exactly where they were held at the time, quite quite a while ago now. Um, but the it was always an, an aggressive race and you'd see a few minutes of it perhaps on Eurosport uh, in the sort of sports roundup. There wouldn't be live coverage of it. But then in the UK, in some of those years, there wasn't live coverage of men's Milan San Remo either. So, mm. I mean, uh, um, it's not all that long ago that um, the men's cycling didn't get the level of exposure that it now gets in certainly the UK market. Um, but, I mean... Only, I think, of those six editions, I think only three ended in sprint finishes. The other three were attacks. Uh, Susanna Lundskog of Sweden attacked on the Poggio, right at the top of the Poggio in 2001. And uh, Zulfia Zabirova, the Russian rider, 
did the same thing two years running in 03 and 04. She attacked on the Chipressa and held on to win by about 30 seconds or so. Um, I think the bigger problem for having a women's edition of Milan San Remo now is that the Trofeo Alfredo Binder has taken that slot the day before, sorry, in this case, the day after Milan San Remo. And I mean, that is a cracking race on a really good course. And I do think that there has to be some kind of oversight from somebody, you would like to think the UCI, to preserve what already is great about the women's calendar and you know, add to and augment that, not kind of just create a sort of um, unmanageable uh, race program for the teams. Because let's not forget, the teams are half the size of men's teams. And we're getting to a point where with all the stage racing that's going on between now and the Tour de France in the end of July, um, there's a significant race program to be covered. And with the illness that's been sweeping through not just the um, women's peloton, it's a phenomenon in the men's peloton this year as well. It only takes, what, a couple of illnesses, an injury, and teams are down to the bare bones to to even fill um, the rosters for some of these races. So whilst growth is fantastic, um, there has to be someone looking at how to make all of this growth, um, you know, sustainable and make sure that it dovetails well together so that we're we're not being asked to um you know uh, pick and choose and, and and frankly make the wrong choices i mean i'm not going to have a pop at something like the tour of romandy in the, on the men's calendar but that is a week that really could be used for a very high profile women's race and and so that the men's and women's calendars are dovetailing and almost kind of um you know like hitting a ball over a, a tennis net you know so that the focus goes from one to the other um, because, you know, the, the focus doesn't need to be on the, the men's stage racing the whole time. Um, but like I say, I don't look at the UCI and think that there's a, a tremendous kind of <laughs> certainly public facing vision uh, in terms of, you know, laying out how this should all work. Um, because it's not about what happens this year or next year. It's about what what is this all going to look like in five years, 10 years time? Yeah. Where hopefully the sport yeah. has matured what's to a the point year, where... What's the goal? Yeah, exactly. Work back exactly. from that. Yeah. In in their defence, I've looked at it. I've sat down with a blank sheet of paper. I've tried to kind of make the perfect calendars, and it's absolutely impossible. <laughs> so, well, if I do you can't sympathize. do it, Lionel, then we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give up and go home. <laughs> I'll take my ball back. <laughs> the cycling podcast Femina is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, thank you to our sponsors, Science in Sport, for their continuing support of this podcast and all of the other podcasts in the Cycling Podcast family, of course. Um, If you're looking for 25% off Science in Sport products, and why the hell would you not want that? Then go to scienceinsport.com and type in the code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Right, we've had Lionel's pick, which was... Uh, he almost threw us a curveball, though, there, when we thought he was going to say Perry Bay, and then he said Strada Bianchi, and then he said Perry Bay again. <laughs> but that's kind of the nature of the ever-changing Spring Classic season. But, Orla, <laughs> what was your moment or highlight or race or rider that you want to kind of focus on that has kind of piqued your interest? There have genuinely been so many, and I'd love to talk about Lotte Capecchi, um, or, indeed, the joy of Elisa Balsamo... Um, and it sounds and feels ridiculous to call this a breakthrough year for Balsamo when she came into the season as world champion. Mm. But it but it has been, really. Um, but I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm actually going to be very cheeky and talk about 
or start this with a race that's not on the Women's World Tour, um, Omelette Pet Newsblad. Because partly because you're taking our memories, stretching our memories all the way back, yeah, all, all the way back. But I'm going to take you all the way forward. Oh. Come on a journey with me Ooh. through the spring. Um, partly because I just I loved how that race played out. I found it really fun, mm. and the fact that it shouldn't have been won in the way it was was brilliant. Let me remind you, of course, it was Annemiek van Vleuten who essentially was her own lead-out train um, over Demi Vollering. She should not have been in that sprint finish, really, having led Vollering out for uh, 100 kilometres and not needing a turn at the front and not getting a turn at the front. That little flick of the elbow to Vollering, who went... I don't know five pedal strokes in front of her, and then and then sat back in the wheel again. And but I, what I remember most clearly is Demi Vollering's face. Do you remember when she's just <laughs> sitting in Annemiek van Vleuten's wheel, and she's just her her head is shaking, and she looks exhausted. She was like she couldn't believe that she was couldn't go that she was still even, going. Yeah, couldn't even get around van Vleuten to even take to even. To, ta- to try and contribute, she couldn't even try and contribute. Mm. It was so remarkable. Yeah. But you just would have expected in that finish that Vollering, with the fastest sprint finish, would have had all the energy conservation to bring Mm. her forward, and she didn't, and it was a beautiful win. Part of the reason I want to flag that is because it made me think um, what I alluded to earlier, which was in the absence of Anna van der Breche, this was going to be the spring for Annemiek van Vleuten, and that she would sweep up all of these wins that had been left uh, there for the gathering, and she didn't. So actually, the beatability of um, of Annemiek van Vleuten, what, that's not a word. I'm aware of that, which, which is why I paused. But anyway, um, I find that really interesting. But, you know, three second places, and, mm. and some of them are incredibly close and ones that we would have expected her to win, Strata Bianchi being one of them, one fourth place, and the fact that she didn't win until Liège, Baston Liège, and then won it in such dramatic style, you know, with a huge um, solo breakaway. But I find that really quite indicative, I think, of where we are, because even Van Vleuten, actually, after Liège, Baston Liège, said that she's never felt better in the spring than she feels right now. And yet she had to wait till Liège before she got her win. That is the strength of the women's peloton and, and, and just how difficult it is to win a women's bike race right now. I absolutely love that. Um, I should say that the last time she won, uh, she left it this late to win rather a women's world tour race. In 2018, she did finish off by being uh, time trial world champion. So I don't think she's going to be in any panic whatsoever. Unfortunate, of course, that she's now um, fractured her wrist and has needed surgery and can't compete in the Spanish races. But then leads us, you know, into ever more intrigue ahead of the Tour de France fam, which will, I think, be the focal point of, of the season for many of us, certainly from a narrative point of view anyway. Um, but yeah, it was that win at Omloop and the fact that she was, when we say someone's invincible, can we, can we, can we say vincible? <laughs> Why not? Vincible? The fact that she's vincible <laughs> um, was really exciting, but also the fact that she's bookended her yeah. spring with wins um, just, just excites me. Really, but, but we should also remember, I mean, she doesn't, hasn't really done an extensive um, spring season. She hasn't done quite as many races a lot of, of, of her rivals uh, have done. Um, but we should also remember that she did have a crash in Paru Bay in October last year where she, mm. she had a hip, fractured hip, a broken shoulder. And I think, 
her recovery was actually a lot quicker than was first anticipated. Um, but for her to have come into this uh, season um, and to have got the results that she's got is is incredibly uh, imp- impressive. I think. Yeah, and I'm I'm not even I'm not saying that she's under delivered or underperformed. Mm. Like I say, she's had three second places. Yeah, and a fourth. She's been right up there. It's more the fact that. Um, there are certain situations now where before I would have thought this is this is her, this is hers for the taking. No one will be able to beat her. And she's been beaten. And yet she's still so strong. It's not that she's getting weaker, you know, it's not that she's losing her edge in any way. It's just that um the woman's Peloton has 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 raised up another level again, which is what's exciting. I did wonder perhaps that maybe um lose it because they have lost Leah Thomas uh, from the Movistar team obviously she's gone to Trek and I think people also know Emma Norsgaard a lot better than they did last year I think Emma Norsgaard for Movistar was kind of a surprise package and it meant that Anami could kind of sit back and relax knowing that Norsgaard could always win in a sprint I think now the other teams are a lot more aware of that dynamic between Emma Norsgaard and Annemiek van Vleuten and I do think that Leah Thomas is a bit of a loss um, to the Movistar team because she's such a good uh, climbing domestique. I think even in Liège-Bastogne-Liège, when uh, Van Vleuten made that that first attack on La Redoute, then the the person who was at the front of the group behind was Leah Thomas. She was a, her former teammate who was the person who bridged across to uh, Van Vleuten and kind of foiled that initial attack that she made in the end it didn't matter because she just made another attack obviously um (laughs) and won it anyway but uh, I did wonder if that slight change to the team dynamic might have meant that some of those second places might have been first maybe she could have conserved a little more energy maybe she would have been in a slightly better position in some of them perhaps I don't know what what does everyone else think about that I don't know. I think I think that kind of thing is almost written by the results, really, mm. because we were praising Movistar's new strength and depth. Um, in if not the last episode, then the one before. You know, they were at top of the women's world here mm. for the first time ever. Um, so I think maybe that's something that we're projecting on to the fact that she hasn't won as much. But obviously, Leah Thomas will be will be a big loss. That's our job. But I, I, we're think that, I think that, that's the <laughs> that's, that's the job of just to project. <laughs> very true. Just very true. But I, but I think I think Movistar have a good setup. I think I think they're looking strong. Um, and I think Annemiek van Vleuten once she starts to win again, and that becomes the dominant narrative, doesn't it? Which she has done, Liège, Bastogne, Liège, but unfortunately fractured her wrist since then. I mean, 11 race days this year and she's been in the top four on eight of those days. That is not that is not too shabby. And uh, Lizzie Banks took exception to me saying that uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège kind of salvaged her spring um, because, uh, you know, she'd come up short in most of the other classics, hadn't she? I mean, Strada Bianca, she was done at the finish. But if you'd had to say, I, I thought, um, that was an upset at the time. I mean, again, same, same. again, seeing what Lotta Capecchi did subsequently puts a different spin on that. Um, mm. At the Tour of Flanders, again, you know, less of a surprise, perhaps. I also thought it was an upset on uh, the Murder Hui. Uh, I don't want to spoil uh, anyone mm. else who wants to pick their moments of the spring, <laughs> Rose. But um, Massive, I, though. Massive. Know, that, I, that's one I would have had her name down for, for sure. I, yeah. I just thought this 
this is Van Vluten's in the right position all the way up this climb, and then suddenly she wasn't. Um, that was really interesting to see. But Liège, Baston Liège, if any course favours um, a kind of a, a tactical plan that is absolutely unequivocal and the strength to carry it out, it's that course, isn't it? That stretch from Laridou to the finish is very, very hard. Um, but she, I think Lizzie, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just stealing Lizzie Banks's points here, but she made a very good point. Well, that, that's that it, what she's here for. It's fine. <laughs> Lizzie won't mind. <laughs> you're giving her credit though, yeah. Lionel. You should just, you know. Many would just nick it and say nothing, Lionel. You, you, you're a man of honour. You say, as my time as a female professional cyclist, I can tell you that's, that's what you should be exactly, going for. Yeah. It was, see if we notice. It was the old-fashioned one-two, you know, the boxing blow, the kind of the, the, the big left, but then keeping the big right, assuming she's right-handed. Van Vluten, I don't know actually, but um, you, you get what I'm saying. Depends you know, which you wrist she's hurt as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh dear, I'm getting into trouble here, aren't I? But she, she kind of, you know, she delivered a sort of you know eighty percent blow on Laradute, knowing that she still had something else left, and and um, and then sort of cemented it on the uh, Cote de Rochefoucauld, and then time trial to the finish and. I've made this point about the men's race as well, but that finish is so hard to chase on. I, I think if you're out in front, we've seen it quite a few times in both the men's and the women's races, the, the pendulum does swing in favour of a strong rider out in front um, just because the, the roads are so, you know, there's, there's nothing in them. They, they're really hard to ride on anyway. Uh, they just demand 100% commitment to the cause. And if you're the sole rider out in front, then you've got nothing else but to give 100%. Whereas there's always that little bit of doubt in the chase behind. I think we saw that again, a, another kind of tactically subtle chase, wasn't it? Because no one wanted to overcommit and blow their chances at the finish. So even though I think it was FDJ and SD Works both had um, two riders, didn't they, in that chase group? Um, you know, it wasn't as simple as just saying, well, there's six of one and, and one up there. So the the strength should be with the chasers. It was a real fascinating run in that. And um, back to your point all about seeing more of these races. You now, we, we can only judge it on the context of like the 45K or so that we saw. It'd be really interesting to know the kind of attritional damage that was done in the early part of the race and how how the stronger teams use that strength in the bit of the race that we didn't see because I've got the sense and the feeling that, that that's how those races are won when they get really hard at the end. It's it's all of the effort that's saved in the first third of the race, the first half of the race. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by MAP, who are our clothing partners they came on board at the start of the year. And uh, Rose Orler, if you can see just behind me on the wall now, I've got the, the pink Ooh. jersey from the Giro d'Italia. And very nice. a very, uh, very nice uh, deep blue map jersey. I'd say um, it's an Eve Klein blue, isn't it? Is that right? I mean, I defer is to your it? knowledge of shades <laughs> of blue there. Right. We'll go with that. <laughs> but I think you'll agree. Blank faces, dear listener. <laughs> it, it looks, it looks magnificent. It's really nice to wear as well. Um, it's one of the lighter weight jerseys for, um, probably ideal for the the English summer. Um, I guess down in Australia where Map was founded, they probably wear that in the winter and um, you know quite warm and toasty <laughs> and comfortable. Um, 
But uh, no, Map have come on board and uh, we have a collaboration uh, which I can tease a little bit lined up for later on in the year. We'll, we'll be announcing that during the Tour de France in July. Um, but until then, you just have to um, wait and guess what the uh, extent of our collaboration will be. I mean, it will, it, there'll be a jersey. There'll be a cycling podcast jersey. There, I've said too much. I've said too much. Sorry. <laughs> It would be very strange if it wasn't connected to a jersey, to be fair. If we were, if we were chatting a new handbag range or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> so we don't worry, see. it's not too much of a spoiler. We shall see. <laughs> um, check out map.cc, that's M-A-A-P dot C-C. Have a look at all of the beautiful clothing. I wore uh, most of the deep winter clothing on my recent cycle tour around Scotland. Uh, it didn't get above about sort of 9, 10 degrees all week, so um, I needed to be kept warm. I mean, the winter gloves are absolutely remarkable in the sense that you can ride for four or five hours in them and they just don't let water in. That was uh, that was uh, quite extraordinary for me. And if you ride off-road as well or do a bit of gravel riding, the new Alt Road collection is worth checking out. And go to map.cc um, to see the whole range of map jerseys, uh, shorts, um, winter clothing, summer clothing. You name it, they do it. And casual clothing, in fact. I'm taking a bag of T-shirts out to the Giro for uh, Daniel and I to wear while we're strolling around in, in Italy, looking the part. Drinking post-11 o'clock cappuccinos. Yeah. <laughs> Cappuccini. I was, te- I was teeing you up for the, for the smart, deprecating comment there, but it didn't come. There we are. No, I think you both look beautiful. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. You're, You're looking e- really well. Klein oh, blue. No. Which I have just <laughs> I have just checked that that is correct. So I was wondering what you were googling there. Her yeah. just tapping <laughs> furiously. <laughs> <laughs> she trying to correct Lionel's take on map yeah. clothing. <laughs> you, you say you say that I have actually gone down a, a clothing size uh, lately. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm feeling I'm pretty confident. Lionel, you're genuinely looking really trim. Feeling confident to uh, crack out the map clothing and and look like uh, look like it, you know. Yeah, wear it well, I think. That's the aim. Yeah, you're going to own that. Let's get back to the cycling. Rose, what was your moment of the spring? I imagine, I imagine it was uh, something in, in the Ardennes, perhaps. It could have been. It could have been like But now, because I feel like with both of you, you both said what you were going to say, and then you both started a bit like, all a minute ago, was like, oh, Lottie, Quebec, blah, blah. So I wonder if I should have just said to come up with something else uh, on the top of my head. But no. But not I'm not going to. No, <laughs> I've just spent all that time looking up Eve Klein on uh, Wikipedia. That uh, I'm just, you know, going to go with what I was going to always say. Uh, but I do want to focus in on a very particular moment, which was that moment when Marta Cavalli was on the shoulder of Annemiek van Vluten on the uh, murder fui right at the top. And it, you know, as you said, Orla, we thought that Annemiek would have had it in the bag, but we just had seeing Marta Cavalli right on her shoulder. And I thought this is such a perfect moment for illustrating that kind of changing of the guard that I think is kind of happening uh, this season with Anna van der Breggen, who won uh, Flesh Wallon seven times now not being at the race and having a new champion in Marta Cavalli, um, a 24-year-old rider, uh, a rider who I think, I mean, obviously she won Amstel Gold Race um, just a few days before, a week before, when the, oh, the calendar changed, didn't it, this season? Ten so days before, I think Ten it days was. before. Yeah. Um, so obviously she won 
Amstel Gold uh, 10 days before. But sometimes Amstel Gold race does turn up a, a kind of winner that you might not be expecting. So I think to see her uh, talent and ability kind of confirmed by following up uh, on the murder fouille, I thought that was incredibly um, impressive. Uh, and I and it also just kind of showed me that I think she, in that Amstel Gold race, she took the advantage of the fact that Cecily Utrecht Ludwig, Brody Chapman were both taken out with illness and so they didn't start. So normally I think the responsibility of being the team leader and of getting the result would have fallen on Cecily Utrecht Ludwig. Um, so to see Marta Cavalli kind of take up that opportunity and uh, show herself to be um, a, a, you know, a great champion in that moment, I think... Uh, shows just how the peloton is is evolving and with Anna van der Breggen now out of the picture that to see some of these younger riders coming through um, and being the stories uh, of the day I think uh, that shows you what the rest of the season might might hold. But as you say that moment at um, the, the the very end of, of Flashlon, mm. top of Murder Wee, that was the moment that you thought the changing of the guard but did you think that when Marta Cavalli was coming up and approaching Annemiek van Vleuten, did you think at that stage Cavalli could have this? Because I didn't. Once no, no, again, I didn't. I thought, this I is didn't. classic. There's no way Annemiek can be beaten in this situation. Mm, she is mm, the strongest mm. um, and it's a valiant effort, but Annemiek van Vleuten has got this in the bag. No, no, this, this is very much uh, me coming up with a nice little neat um, package <laughs> uh, with the help of hindsight. Tied up but, no, cause, yes, because I, I honestly, I, did, I really didn't think um, that. But it always watching uh, Flesh Rollon always surprises me how long the murder we is. Yeah. Because yeah. I always think, okay, that's... Especially the last bit, which sounds ridiculous. Yeah, but that last goes bit on goes on forever. forever. The, it's like and a I've 10 been, metre stretch. It's 200 metres long. Yeah, I've been to the Murder Fui a number of times. I've been to the race. I've walked all the way up it, filmed every <laughs> single corner, all of this kind of boring stuff. Did you come out of a black hole at the top, though? <laughs> just, <laughs> you, Did you yeah, come out in another space-time dimension? <laughs> and then saw everything from the view of hindsight. But no, um, uh, and, but it still surprised me watching it that that you you think it's over and you have to really be so patient on it and I think that's what Anna van der Breggen was always the queen of being uh, so patient and measuring her effort so carefully because she always kept a little bit more for that but when it flattens out right at the very very last um, she would always have uh, a little uh, bit more energy to go and a little bit of a sprint right at the end there oh, sprint, I say a sprint but you know what I mean um, she could move, still move her push. legs a little quicker <laughs> at the end Um so I think to to win there is is an incredibly uh, impressive achievement for Marta Cavalli and kind of shows an experience beyond her years. But I think when you do have someone like uh, Annemiek van Vluten, then you know that you just need to hang on to the back of her wheel and then fingers crossed you have something at the end, don't you? Because she's going to be just, the, like... yeah, she just <laughs> need to hang on to Annemiek van Vleuten's wheel. <laughs> because I think that's the mistake. Somebody call the ambulance. Yeah, when you saw... Uh, when we when were like, watching uh, Amstel Gold Race, I think that is the mistake that SD Works made in that moment, which opened up the opportunity for Marta Cavalli to win there. Because that, again, that's the Cowberg, although it's a slightly different finish to Flesh Wallon because it, it's much flatter for about a kilometre uh, at the end of the race. But it was on the Cowberg when they were going up, it was kind of a, a reduced group that had been become reduced because Van Fluten had, you know, made some 
huge attack, had narrowed down the group, and then Demi Vollering and Ashley Mormon Pascio were just watching uh, Van Fluten, and they weren't looking at anyone else. And it was exactly at that moment that Mormon Pascio turned her head uh, to watch uh, Van Fluten was when Marta Cavalli came up along the left-hand side and just went shooting off past her. So I think in a way, uh, in when you have a race like Flesh Wallon, I think I might be just contradicting what I've just been saying, possibly. <laughs> but hopefully no one will bother re-listening. But um, so I think that it was it in that Flesh Wallon, I think if you know... Th- that you can well, you don't know that you can hang on to Annemiek van Vleuten, but if you if you can keep her in your sights, and then just hope that at the end you have something more to give, then then you can win. But I think uh, a lot of the time people are too impatient to do that. So I thought that it showed great maturity in mm. Marta Cavalli's riding that she was able to not jump the gun um, and was able to kind of kind of cement her status as as a rider rider to watch. And great strength as well. You just saw Annemiek mm. van Vleuten's head bobbing from side yeah, to side. Yeah, she was yeah. pulling the bike underneath yeah. her, wasn't there? Wasn't she from left to right? And it just showed the effort that a rider of her power was putting in behind. Just made the win visibly and visually so much more remarkable. Mm. And we should say about, you know, Marta Cavalli, her, her results in the other races as well. I mean, she got fifth in Paris-Roubaix and sixth in Liège-Baston-Liège. So I think she has really um, flourished uh, this this year. Although I did go back at last year's results and she did get 17 top 10 finishes last year. Um, but obviously, you We've know. we talked about her a lot. Yeah. yeah, we do. But if it's not, you know, if it's not a win, then I think people don't look, you, you never have that target on your back, do you? Um, so obviously that she's really had a, a breakthrough uh just in the last few weeks. And I wondered, with the murder hui being such a test of that patience and timing and just getting it right, because there's so little margin for error, really, whether the fact that she'd already won at Amstel Gold mm. just just loosened the shoulders a little bit, you know, get the first one and the second one just seems to come that little bit mm. more easily. Um, you know, perhaps just less intimidated by the fact that it's Van Vleuten that she's, you know, going directly up against. Um, I mean, that's into the realms of speculation, but we do see this. Riders get their first big win and the second one comes along um, relatively quickly. I guess it's always going to help. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's always going to help the team strategy though, isn't it? I mean, when you're a team and you've got someone who's already won in the Arden, whether Amstel is the Arden or not, we won't bother going into now, but let's. I would say it was. So that's what we're going to say. Because it's not. Because it's not. <laughs> it's, it, like I, mean, I said, Lionel, we're well, not going to go. <laughs> we're not going to go into it now. So I wish there was a. I will concede. Cut. I will concede. It's one of the Arden classics, even though it's not in the Arden. Okay, no, well, that's, that's, what what, that's what we need. That's what, that's what we need. That's it comes under the umbrella of Arden classics. Doesn't matter where it is, really. It's just yeah, that's irrelevant. <laughs> so if you've won a race recently, is what I'm all I'm going to say then. Um, and you're racing a similar style of race, <laughs> then um, it with it, a similar umbrella of a name, name for example, for example, <laughs> then it, it, I think it probably does help for the the team to know that you are. You, I mean, you obviously have good form. 
Um, you're obviously you have you can take the responsibility of being the team leader, whereas they might have looked to Brody Chapman say to do that. And also, I mean, I noticed in in that flesh alone, um, FTJ did miss that a kind of early break. Um, they're one of the few teams to not be featured in that break, and they did put Brody Chapman on the front to bring it back. Whether they may would have made that same decision, not you know with without the understanding that Marta Cavalli could have, could win that race or had a very good chance of winning that race, you know, it, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I think certainly it's bound to change the team tactics if you've got a recent uh, winner amongst your ranks, especially if the winner isn't someone that you're expecting to be, I think. I, I yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to say that... Uh, for FDJ, you know, she she made herself into a horse that was worth backing, Cavalli, mm. didn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah, another see. horse-based pun. <laughs> Just uh, stealing Lizzie Banks's thunder there <laughs> with, a, with a horse-based pun. <laughs> I, you know, we, we're hoping to. Um, I don't know if we've asked her yet, but we're hoping to use Lizzie Banks a little bit more on the second mm. podcast, Femina, going yes. forward. Um, so I'm hoping that Lionel, you haven't scuppered those plans, or maybe maybe this is actually the invite that she needed. She's going to come on and give you what's what and steal all, steal all of her own words. Well, maybe we so just need to get your own. Exactly. maybe we just need to get Lionel a wig, though. Have we considered that? Just, that might uh... also just work as well. And then Lionel can just steal Lizzie's intellectual property. Instead. It's just a cunning ploy to get Lizzie to come on and make her yes. own points herself yeah. instead well of having done. me well do them. Well done, Lionel. Who needs to pick up the phone anyway? Yeah, personal exactly. human contact is so overrated. <laughs> Lizzie, if you Lizzie, if you're listening for long enough to be offended by Lionel stealing your words, will you come on the Cycling Podcast Feminine a little bit more? Thanks very much. <laughs> Excellent. Can I just um, make one final point about the racing? It's not World Tour racing, but it was the Grand Prix Elsie Jacobs this mm-hmm. week, wasn't it, in mm-hmm. Luxembourg? And it just took me back to one of my very first appearances on one of the very first episodes of the Cycling Podcast Feminine, because people might not remember, I was actually included in the very first few episodes, wasn't yeah. I, Orla? I did a little, um, some uh, sort of a, an explainer about something from the world, oh the historical world of women's How cycling. terrible to say, I'd forgotten that. And That's true. One of, that was Yeah, brilliant. one of the first was just to explain who, who Elsie Jacobs yeah. was, because she was the first winner of the UCI Women's World Championship Road Race in 1958. That was the first time they held a road race for women and Elsa Jacobs from Luxembourg won it. She also broke the hour record later that year and that record stood until 1972, um, 14 years that is. And the race is held in her hometown, Garnick. Um, She passed away a number of years ago now. Um, When would that have been? That would have been in the 90s, I think, she passed away. Elsie Jacobs but the race was held this week wasn't it and the reason it caught my eye was because Anna Henderson won the prologue time trial and just to bring everything back to me um, (laughs) Anna Henderson Anna Henderson has overtaken me on more than one occasion riding around the lanes of Not Watford uh, because she's based in in or around Hertfordshire, certainly over the winter anyway. Um, and and I've, I know she visits some of the cycling cafes around here. So uh, that result caught my eye. Her biggest win uh, to date uh, for Jumbo Visma. Um, so maybe we should catch up with her over if the winter. If you can catch her, that, that's the problem though, Lionel. Yes, well, <laughs> she keeps overtaking you. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that is a problem, isn't it? Maybe do the interview in the cafe rather than on the bikes. <laughs> that would make it easier for me, I think. Well, you trying to train to catch up with Anna Henderson, be it on a cafe or on a road, Lionel, sounds like uh, a great plan for a, or a target for winter. A winter target, if we don't happen to talk to her before then. But what have we got planned uh, coming up before then? Well, it's a very good point, Rose. Uh, Our plans are somewhat fluid at the moment. The only thing that's certain is our commitment to the cycling podcast Feminine, which, as you know, Richard was uh, the driving force in creating, instrumental in creating back in 2016. We talked about it. How do we incorporate more women's coverage into the cycling podcast Um, coverage of cycling in general and Rich was very determined to have a separate show uh, at least initially uh, to give the space for stories to develop and uh, you know the same level and depth of coverage uh, rather than shoehorning it into a segment in the regular cycling podcast and we discussed this and we have continued to discuss this over the years I know all of we've had discussions about this as well haven't we at various times but the commitment was to a show that was dedicated to uh, women's cycling but with a kind of a longer term goal to break down the distinction between men's cycling and women's cycling and that's something that certainly Richard has inspired me to appreciate more I mean I've always watched women's cycling um, I've always taken an interest in, and I've listened to the cycling podcast Feminine. But I think we, you know, the sport in general, as I said earlier, needs to start thinking about how um, the two halves of the greater whole can dovetail together. And certainly here on the cycling podcast, we were thinking about ways to begin that process or continue that process at, at a faster pace. And I suppose the creation of Arrive. Uh, over the spring which was our kind of uh, knee-jerk reactions to the races the intention was to include the women's classics in that as well Um, we did that I'm glad we did that and I'm very grateful to Lizzie Banks for um, joining me on those shows for Paris-Roubaix, Flesh Wallonne and Liège-Baston-Liège and so we need to all sit down and talk about how we continue that process because really that is um, the, the greatest strength of Richard's legacy uh, instilling in me and I'm sure many other people um, an interest in uh, what was originally and initially a kind of neglected side of the sport and which is no longer neglected. Um, and so um, our commitment to that is, uh, is, is absolute and we're going to have to think of ways to, to do it. But I'm sure as a team, we will, we will um, rise to the task over the coming months and years. Lionel, it's also really, really encouraging, I think, and indicative of where the cycling podcast as a as a, an entity is that you've been so willing as well to to be a, you know that link I guess um because I was always really heartened by the fact that um, not only Richard kept driving the cycling podcast feminine but but that he was that bridge between the two podcasts you know and I I've, I always thought that was important and I'm, I don't know why but I did um so anyway, so it's lovely to to have you. So thank you for chatting. <laughs> well, I feel like, um, I do feel a bit like I've been called up to the to a big race with little training. <laughs> but as um, as Lizzie Banks very, um, very generously said, 
Um, I'm catching on reasonably quickly. <laughs> and we all know that what Lizzie Banks says is gospel. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, thank you very much, Lila, especially uh, coming on knowing that you're you're off to the Giro. Your Giro mm. saga begins imminently. Super early really. tomorrow morning. We need to let you go and and finish off your panic packing, as I tend to do the night before. My panic packing, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm over the weight limit on my suitcase uh, at the moment, so I need to do a bit of redistributing. Wear it. But um, that's what I would do. Oh, yeah. Wear ten yeah. layers. Just one one point of order. Just one point of order, a, a sort of not quite a corrections corner, but a clarifications corner. Um, what was the blue colour? Rose Eve. Eve Klein. Eve Klein. Eve Klein. Yeah. Well, the map jersey is actually space blue, but it is very, very close. Have you to looked Eve up Klein Eve Klein? Line up. I've looked up Eve Klein, and I've looked up space blue. I've looked up on the map website the Evade Pro base long sleeve jersey, which is hanging on my wall behind me in space blue. Okay. Uh, very elegant. If anyone elegant, wants to look up Space agree. Blue and compare it to Eve Klein Blue, then please do. How do you find that they look very similar? It to Eve Saint Laurent Blue, but Eve Saint Laurent Blue is a lot brighter, isn't it? Anyway. Or is that just made up? Is what? Eve Saint Laurent Blue? Oh, no, there's a very specific blue used by Eve Saint Laurent that's all over his gardens in Marrakesh. Which is the only okay, reason well, I know. Oh, I see. Oh, you see? very nice. You see, I'm not making, I'm not making shit up, similar. Rose. I'm here for my It is also similar. <laughs> it's quite similar to Eve Kleinblue, but I wouldn't say the map one necessarily. There we go. <laughs> well, now, Come hopefully, listeners, you're totally, Stay. you're so <laughs> Come for the cycling. You're totally confused. Stay for the chat about the variations in shades of blue. <laughs> Which we can't even demonstrate because it's a podcast. 50 but hopefully that's blue. left everyone intrigued enough to go and look on the map website. So hopefully that's that's worked very nicely. But no, Lila, we should uh, we should let you uh, go uh, and get Grazie mille. packing. Arrivederci. All of your... Uh, Instant Nescafe coffee that you've no, will have, oh, no doubt goodness. will have packed uh, to survive the month. And all I believe that you're at some kind of shindig um, or oh, shindig no. coming up. I'm actually not. I'm depositing my children in Scotland so they can attend the shindig while I go to Bath to cover the Giro d'Italia from on there. The yes. I'm, I'm recording from Scotland um, tonight because, or today, whenever you're listening, because my uh, niece also called Orla, is having her first Holy Communion this Saturday and I couldn't let my kids miss out so I brought them here and then I'll fly on to Bath and my husband will take them home. How so many communions do you get? How can it well, be first every, one? every Mass, Rose. Once oh, you've had your I first see. Holy Communion, you keep receiving communion. Oh. See? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you're not allowed to take communion until you've had your first Holy Communion. So relevant question, but luckily I thought I, be, I thought I was put on the spot there, and then realised it was very easy. So no, phew, you realised it was phew. just a dumb question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Um, well, I'll leave you leave you to that, Orla, and uh, well, we'll 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 gather next when we, we gather next. We I suppose. Is what yes, we'll, we'll convene in, in about a month, shall we? Let's do that. Perfect. Thanks, guys. See you then. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.